this morning marks a transition for our group. We've been going through 1 Corinthians, and now we're going to shift our focus and start with the Old Testament. And uh, our, I think our desire is to cover the whole Bible, to cover as much as we possibly can, because it's all really important. We, we want to cover the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. We want to cover everything. So uh, we'll be alternating Old Testament and New Testament going forward. We want to continue with a lot of expository teaching on Sundays, but then have some topical lessons as well. So I wanted to begin, as we start in Genesis, with a lesson that's kind of an introduction to the Old Testament. Most Christians that I know focus almost exclusively on the New Testament in their own personal study, and unfortunately it's the same thing with a lot of preachers and, and, and uh, uh, evangelists and preachers, is that they focused almost completely on the New Testament, even people's devotional lives, uh, maybe they'll focus on the New Testament and the Psalms. Uh, Many Christians have read through the Old Testament once, so they're familiar with the stories, but that's about as far as it goes. And when I ask people, why don't you read the the Old Testament very much, or the the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, maybe maybe, uh, some of these answers will resonate with you with things that you've felt or things you've heard from other people. Things things that I hear are, are, for example, well... I want to study things that are really relevant for my own life and for the challenges that I'm facing right now. And the, 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 so that's why I like to focus on, on the New Testament, because I want something that's relevant for me personally. Uh, another one is to say, well, the Old Testament, that was meant for the Jews and the New Testament for the Christians. So that was useful for them, but it's not really written for me. Another thing, I want to focus on Jesus and his teachings. So I'm going to stay in the Gospels uh, primarily. Or, I really like the God of the New Testament much better than the God of the Old Testament. I hear this one frequently. The God of the New Testament is full of love and grace and mercy. On the other hand, the God of the Old Testament is a God that is to be feared. He's punishing he seems stern and, and, and judging people, the God of the Old Testament. So I, want, I, want, I like the God of the New Testament better. It's much more encouraging. Uh, another one is, well, the Old Testament isn't that all about the law and the law of Moses and following the law of Moses. And the law has been done away with, so, so what's, what's, why in the world would I be focusing on, on the law anymore? Uh, and then another one just, hey, it's Old Testament is too hard to understand. There's too many people. There are dozens of kings. It's not exactly in chronological order. It's hard to keep track of the kings and the prophets and the different places people are going. So I just confuse. The New Testament is much simpler. So, so the bottom line is, For all these reasons and maybe a few others, most Christians don't spend that much time in the Old Testament. Now, while I think most of the people in this room are devoted to studying the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, I think it's good to 
be able to understand why it's so important so that we can reinforce our own convictions and also be able to help others to get a clearer picture. So I'm going to give my top eight reasons why it's important for Christians to study the Old Testament. Years ago, as a, as a young disciple in my 20s, uh, shortly after I was baptized, I took an Old Testament survey class, and uh, Doug Blau was the teacher. We're still we're still friends, and it opened my eyes up to the power of the Old Testament. I also saw that most Christians are focused on the New Testament, so I decided I, I could be of more help to the church if I really study the Old Testament. And, and I'm prepared to be able to teach that. Because after all, the first reason is the Old Testament is three-quarters of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, it says that God caused the people to hunger in the wilderness and then fed them with manna to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus reiterated that in Matthew chapter 4 when he was quoted by Satan. He quoted that as well. So if we need to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we can't neglect three-quarters of it. So that's the first, the first reason it makes up three-quarters of the Bible. The second reason, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a scripture that is well known to many Christians. We're going to read starting in verse 14. Paul is is, uh, writing to Timothy. He says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, now it's ironic to me that most of the people who quote and refer to this verse then focus almost exclusively on the New Testament. Paul is giving this to Timothy, and obviously at the time that Paul is writing to Timothy, most of the New Testament was not written and wasn't available. He's talking about the Old Testament, the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So according to Paul, it's very important, it's all of inspired by God, it's all Uh, given by inspiration, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's profitable for doctrine, that doesn't mean theology, doctrine, the old sense of the word doctrine means teaching, it's it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that we may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's talking about primarily the, or primarily or completely the Old Testament there. So if we want to be complete, if we want to be thoroughly equipped for our own lives and for helping others, for 
rebuking or reproof for correction, for instruction. It's beneficial for all these things. So we need the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, if we want to be complete. That's the second. Does that parallel Hebrews 4.12? Well, that's a good question. Does it parallel Hebrews 4.12? Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is is uh, uh, living and active in some translations. And the question, in my mind, the Word of God can refer to either the Scriptures, the written Word of God, or it can also refer to uh, Jesus, who is the Word of God, who became flesh. Mm -hmm. So the question in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, in my mind, is which one is it referring to? I remember I was in Eastern Europe, and in the translation that in one of the countries I was in, one of the translations, it, it seemed that it was referring to the Son of God as mm. living and active rather than the Scriptures, which is what I had been taught. And honestly, reading Hebrews chapter 4 in context, I'm not sure, but that's a great question. Uh, the third reason, and this is, this is, to me, this is so important. It, it helps... Knowing the Old Testament well helps me to see the heart and character of God revealed through history. I can see through the examples of God interacting with his people over history that God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. So important. He's loving, patient, forgiving. But he also warns people. Those who repent, he forgives and restores. In the end, he brings judgment. And he tests those who love him and sends trials their way and delivers the righteous ones in the end. I want to know who God really is. I believe that a lot of spiritual diseases have at their root that people don't understand who God really is that they have created, instead of discovering the real God who's revealed in the Bible, the people have created a God in their own image, or a God that they want to be, a politically correct God. A God with certain aspects completely scrubbed or airbrushed out. So we want to see who God really is, not an imaginary God of my creation, but the God who reveals himself through the scriptures. So I want to introduce you to my God, the God of the Bible who's revealed himself through the Old Testament. And I want to give you some snippets of, of, of God to see aspects of God revealed in places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is the God of the Old Testament, who's the same as the God of the New Testament, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Paul says, consider the kindness and sternness of God in Romans, that there are many aspects of God, and we want to understand them all to the best of our, best of our ability. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Uh, Moses is instructing and encouraging the people that God will be providing for them in the future if they stay faithful to God. And he's talking about when they go into the promised land, the giants that they're going to see there. 
the, the giants and the walled cities and everything else. Of course they got all afraid like it. That's why they were bad. That's right. So the people were afraid and, and Moses wants to encourage them. In, verse, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before your face, he will fight them with you in all things as he did for you in Egypt. And in this desert where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way you went until you came to this place. So it's a beautiful picture of God here is that when the people are going through trials, he carried them through the wilderness as a father carries the son that he loves. So we see God as a, as a loving, nurturing father who's protecting and helping and carrying people through their tough times. That's the God of the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles, the end of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26, 2 Chronicles, at the end of 2 Chronicles, God's people are finally being defeated by the Babylonians and taken off into captivity. Sorry, it's 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 23. So, The Babylonians are coming, destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and hauling the king and the people off into captivity after a long and difficult uh, path that they had been down of of disobeying God. So this this is a very sobering time. In verse 23 it says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent them warnings by his messengers, rising up early and sending his messengers because he spared his people in his dwelling place. But they mocked his messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people and there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against him the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword, and the house of his sanctuary, and did not spare Zedekiah or have pity on the virgins, and he led away the aged. He gave everything into their hands, all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and the nobles. He took all these to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And he settled those remaining in Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of the Medes, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath until 70 years had passed. So I see here that God, although he brought judgment upon the nation of Israel, it was after repeatedly warning them and giving them chances and sending them prophets. But the people mocked and despised and ridiculed for them. They had no respect for the word of the Lord until finally God's patience was exhausted. 
then he brought in judgment on them. But even then, even then, God had a plan to bring them back from captivity after the 70 years of, of learning a lesson when the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. That so God would fulfill his promise made through Jeremiah that he'd bring them back after 70 years of discipline. So I see that God wants his people to repent and he sends messengers to them. He sends them the prophets. That's what the prophets were for. He doesn't want them to be destroyed, but his patience does have limits. And God is also a God to be feared. Ezekiel 18. Another glimpse into the character of the God of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 21. This was something that the Israelites found disturbing in the character of God. Ezekiel 18 verse 21. It says, If a lawless man turns from the lawless deeds he commits and keeps all my commandments, does righteousness and shows mercy, he will surely live and not die. None of the transgressions he commits will be remembered. If the righteousness he does, in the righteousness he does, he shall live. Do I ever will the death of a lawless man, says the Lord? Since my will is for him to turn from his evil ways and live, But when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits wrongdoing according to all the lawlessness a lawless man commits, then all the righteousness he does shall not be remembered in the transgression he falls into and in his sins he commits. In these he shall die. Yet you say the Lord's way is not straight. Hear now, all the house of Israel, is my way not straight? Is your way straight? When the righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits transgressions and dies in the transgression he commits, he should die because of it. Again, when the lawless man turns away from the lawlessness he commits and does judgment and righteousness, then he guards his life, for he's turned himself away from all the ungodliness he committed. He will surely live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The Lord's way is not right. Is not my way right, O house of Israel? Is not your way wrong? I shall judge you, O house of Israel, each one according to his ways, says the Lord. Return and turn away from all your ungodliness, and it shall not be to you as a punishment for wrongdoing. Cast away from yourself all your ungodliness you commit against me, and make a new heart and a new spirit for yourselves. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I do not will the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is a God who wants us to repent, who wants us to turn back. He says, I don't want to destroy anybody. If somebody who's been wicked their whole life and turns away from their wickedness and does righteousness, he say, I will forgive and restore that person. And, and the Jews are, are standing by hearing that and saying, hey, that's not fair. The guy was rotten his whole life and he repents at the end and you're going to save him? That's not fair. And he says, and guess what? If a man is righteous his whole life but turns away at the end, I'll destroy him. And they say, wait, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. But God it tells me, first of all, 
God doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. The whole idea that God created certain people for destruction, it doesn't fit with, with the scripture here. He, he wants the wicked to repent so that he can forgive and restore them. And he's concerned about how we end our lives, not how we've lived to this point. That the focus is on what are you going to do now? What are you going to do for the rest of your life? So there's, there's, hope. there's hope for the wicked and there's, there's warning for the righteous. Both here. And this is who God is. If only Jonah got that message. Okay, that's right. Jonah, Jonah didn't appreciate that. That's, a, good, that's a, a very good point there. So that's who God is. The, the mercy and grace of God doesn't show up in the New Testament for the first time in the story of the prodigal son. This was God. This has always been God's heart. Amen. Ezekiel 34. Another glimpse into God's heart and character revealed in the Old Testament. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord and Master, O shepherds of Israel who feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Behold, you drink the milk and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slay the fatlings, but do not feed my sheep. You've not strengthened the weak, the sick you've not revived, the broken you've not bandaged, the misled you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and the strong you've not prepared for labor. So my sheep were scattered because there were no shepherds. They became food for all the wild animals of the field. My sheep were scattered in all the mountains, and on every hill they were scattered over the face of the earth. There was no one to seek them. Or to bring them back. The heart of God is the heart of the good shepherd. He, obviously he's talking about people. He's not talking about animals here. He's using the figure of a shepherd and sheep. But God has a heart for the the hurting, the wounded, the strays, the lost, the wanderers, the rejected. He cares about every one of those. And he is incensed at the shepherds who neglected that responsibility and are not taking care of the sheep, who are not feeding the sheep that are hungry and are not bandaging up and caring for the sheep that are wounded, that are just looking out for themselves. And he goes on and talks about he's going to call those wicked shepherds to account and he's going to personally provide a shepherd for them, a good shepherd who's going to take care of them. Of course, this is, this is the background for Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep, who leaves the 99 and goes after the one, because this has always been the heart of God. God cares for the hurting, the wounded, and the lost sheep. He always has. This is the God of the Old Testament. Amen. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is the book of Daniel. Has to be a low point in the nation, in the time of the nation of Israel. They've been taken into captivity. The temple has been destroyed. The people have been humiliated. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, is setting himself up with pride and arrogance, just taking total credit for everything that he's done in life. And he's warned by, by Daniel that he needs to repent and humble himself before the Lord. He doesn't do it. God humbles him, turns him basically into a wild animal, and he finally acknowledges that uh, that God is over all. In Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 34. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. At that time I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. Then I blessed the Most High and praised and glorified Him who lives forever. His authority is an eternal authority, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and He does according to His will with the army of heaven and with the habitation of earth. No one can resist His hand or can say to Him, What are you doing? At that time my understanding returned to me, and I came again, to the honor of my kingdom. My appearance was also restored, and my rulers and nobles asked for me. I became strong again in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now therefore I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt beyond measure, Mm -hmm. and glorify the king of heaven, because all his works are true. His paths are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in arrogance." It's a reminder, here we are in the United States right now, there's a, there's a presidential election coming up, and uh, everybody's caught up in who's going to win the election, and uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and recognized that God puts over nations whoever he wants, and he is able to humble whoever he wants, that he is sovereign over the nations, and that all the, all the people of the earth, all the rules of the earth are counted as nothing before him. So God is, God is the sovereign God who is over all nations regardless of what it looks like on the outside. So that's the third reason to study the Old Testament is it helps us to see the true heart and character of God if we know who God is. That's the foundation for our faith. The fourth reason is to understand, to get a background for understanding the New Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to have a hard time understand, really understanding a lot of things in the New Testament. For example, the books of Hebrews and Revelation, about three quarters of those books are either quotations from or allusions to things in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it teaches us that we are saved by faith not by the works of the law. But the big question is, when, when I say saved by faith and somebody else I'm talking to says saved by faith, we mean two totally different things. What does the New Testament mean when it says saving faith? And in James chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 11, saving faith is defined by giving examples from the Old Testament. One of, the, one of the most serious problems, I think, in the, in the Protestant evangelical world is a misunderstanding of what biblical New Testament true saving faith is. And the, the definition for saving faith is provided in the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 11 by over 30 examples 
of men and women who live by faith, who had the kind of faith that it takes. That, that faith is looking forward to something you can't see, from Hebrews chapter 11, the examples. It's belief combined with an obedient response, like Abraham and Noah had. It's faith in the resurrection of the dead that God can raise the dead like Abraham had. It's being willing to forsake the pleasures of this world for a future reward like Moses did. It's persevering and enduring persecution and trials to the end. Like Esther did. That's right. Like many, many people in the Old Testament did in the prophets. So... This is what saving faith is. If you don't know those stories in the Old Testament, it's very easy to to misunderstand what real saving faith embodies. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteous shall live by faith. That's taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, where in, in, in the book of Romans, it's the righteous shall live by faith, not by the works of the law. In Hebrews, the righteous shall live by faith, meaning it's a way of life. Also, consider how the Apostle Peter uses the Old Testament himself. I mean, after all, he, if he's, he's writing to Christians, and he could say, look, I'm the Apostle Peter, just do what I tell you. I'm going to use my authority as apostle to tell you what you need to do and do these, do these ten things. He didn't do that. He could have said, well, here's what Jesus said, and I want to remind you of that. He didn't even do that. What Peter did to support his arguments in his two letters is he gave example after example after example from the Old Testament. For example, in 1 Peter, I counted at least 12 examples where he used the Old Testament to back up his point. When he says we need to live holy lives, he quotes in the book of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. When he calls us to be devoted to the word of God, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 40. When he presents a picture of the church as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, he goes back to Exodus chapter 19. When he explains why we should be willing to suffer patiently in this life, he goes to Isaiah 53, the example of the suffering servant. How should a godly woman live with respect to her husband? He gives us the example of Sarah in the book of Genesis. The importance of being humble with each other. He goes to Proverbs chapter 3. And why we should trust that God will save a righteous few through water on the last day. He uses the example of Noah and his family of eight being saved through the water in the flood. And that water representing baptism in, in Genesis. So, If the Old Testament is no longer relevant to Christians, the Apostle Peter did not get the memo on that one. He backs up every point that he's making with the Old Testament. The fifth reason it gives us good examples, I need heroes to imitate in life. And the world offers horrendous examples of heroes. The heroes of the world are immoral sports figures, They're entertainers, they're politicians, they're people who are popular. 
or wealthy. I need real heroes, people who have shown godly character and perseverance in their lives. And the Old Testament gives me abundant heroes which inspire me and encourage me. Uh, Like people who had to stand out apart from their generation like uh, Noah and Moses and Lot. People who had, had to persevere through difficult challenges like Abraham and Joseph and Job. People who had to show great courage and confidence in God like David. And Esther. And Esther. I think of Phineas in the book of Numbers as a great example of zeal for sexual purity. I think of Daniel as an example to me of righteousness on on the job where even his co-workers, his peers, could not find him anything that was either corrupt nor negligent in him and a man who was devoted to prayer to the point of death. Example of Josiah in restoration, when he saw something in the scriptures that they weren't following, Mm. he changed course. He had the spirit of restoration. Whatever the word of God says, if I didn't know it, when I learn it, I'm going to do it. Or the example of Hezekiah and prayers. I need heroes like that in my life to inspire me going forward. Now that I'm getting a little older in life, I particularly appreciate the some some uh, spiritual heroes who excel later on in life. Moses leads the people out of Egypt starting at the age of eighty. For 40 years through the wilderness, he confronts Pharaoh and the, great, uh, the greatest nation in the world at that time, Egypt, at the age of 80, comes out of retirement. Joshua and Caleb. I think Caleb, in the book of Joshua, saying, I was 40 years old when I came into this promised land the first time. Now... I'm 85 years old. He says, I'm still as strong today as I was then. And he asked God to give him the mountain country because he's just as strong and vigorous for the Lord that he believes that the Lord will deliver it to him just like, just like he said he would. There are great examples for women as well, uh, Deborah and Sarah, uh, the woman and noble character in Proverbs 31. Also, there are bad examples to learn from. The example of Cain. The example of Esau, who who sold his inheritance for a little short-time pleasure of the flesh. Or the example of Joseph's brothers who sold him to slavery. That's right. The example of Joseph's brothers who were jealous. Or the example of Solomon, who who declined spiritually later in life because he got attached to ungodly women who pulled his heart away and also the example of david who was not in the battle and got involved in sin with bathsheba which caused tremendous destruction to his to his life and his kingdom and in and one sin led to another which led to another and even murdering a very righteous man who was devoted to him also the whole nation of israel is an example for us in the exodus numbers story we talked about that when we went through first corinthians first corinthians chapter 10 They were all baptized. They were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. They all had the water and the spirit. But in in passing through the wilderness, which represents the Christian life, 
that most of them, God was not pleased with them because they fell into the four sins. And we need to imitate the example of Joshua and Caleb. So that's it's all examples, good examples and bad examples in the Old Testament to, to follow and, and encourage us. The sixth reason is that the Old Testament provides us with powerful weapons to use against Satan's attacks. We are involved in a spiritual war. We have a powerful enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the spiritual unseen war that we are involved in. It talks about the, the defense that we need. We need the helmet. We need the shield. We need the belt for defense. But we also need the offensive weapon. Paul says we should take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the great offensive weapon. And I think about what Jesus did when he was attacked by Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempts him the three times, he comes back three times with the Old Testament and responds to Satan by saying, It is written. And he goes back and quotes in the book of Deuteronomy. So, great example for us to follow. When we are facing temptation that we know the Word of God, we have it in our hearts. Psalm 119, how can the young man keep his way pure and avoid sin? Hiding the Word of God in his heart and meditating on it day and night. That we need to know the Scriptures and have it so that we can counterattack Satan when we're we're being attacked. The seventh reason, Romans chapter 15. The seventh of the eight reasons. We're almost finished here. In Romans chapter 15, Paul is talking about not living to please ourselves. And I want to, let's think about how he, how he approaches that, that argument. It says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, which is in Psalm 69. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So let's think about that. Paul's saying whatever was written before which is talking about the Old Testament scriptures, these things are written for our learning. This is not obsolete. This is intended for us. All the things in the Old Testament, just like he's applying uh, Psalm 69 there. I'm reminded of something that Justin Martyr said in his debate with Trypho the Jew. Man, I seen Father's Volume 1 in his dialogue with Trypho. He's talking with him, and they're, they're going back and forth uh, with using the Old Testament scriptures about whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. And Justin Martyr at one point says, these, and he's a Samaritan, he's saying to, to Trypho, who's a Jew, he says, these, the Old Testament scriptures, are our scriptures, not yours. Is that when Christians have the Old Testament They have home court advantage. These are our scriptures. This is our book. And then the eighth and final reason is for evangelism and to strengthen our own faith. 
This is the original way that people were converted, and I'm convinced it's still the best way to do it. Convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, using the evidence of prophecies that were written hundreds of years, and in some cases over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. When I was in Albania, predominantly Muslim country, I remember uh, asking uh, some Muslims, do you believe that Jesus was, a, was a, a, a great prophet? Yes, we do. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes, that's, that's a great book. Uh, we believe that that was inspired. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? He said, we don't believe that part. I said, what do you mean? You told me you believe in the Bible. He said, well, the Christians changed that. The Christians changed the New Testament. I said, okay, let's forget the New Testament. We'll use the Old Testament here. I can prove to you from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. Then the Christians couldn't have changed that, and they had no answer, no comeback for that. Uh, Look in the book of Acts, how were Peter, people converted? In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And then he cites 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm 89 in his argument. The Ethiopian eunuch uh, was converted from Isaiah chapter 53. Apollos in Acts chapter 18, Apollos, it says that he uses the Old Testament prophecies to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 goes all over the Old Testament. Paul challenges Felix and Agrippa. You believe the prophets? I know you do. Peter, speaking to Cornelius, who isn't even Jewish in Acts, he says, to him, the Christ, all the prophets bear witness. And in Acts chapter 28, we find Paul in Rome from morning until evening, persuading people from Moses and the prophets that Jesus was the Messiah. Even in Corinthians, Corinth, Corinth was obviously a predominantly Gentile church, as we just studied recently from 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians, the Gentiles, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the Old Testament, he was buried and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, which is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the foundation laid to convince the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And reading the early Christians, they did the same thing. So we should do the same thing today. That's the, uh, the Prove It series that's up on the Internet. I put a lot of material out there for, for how to do that for people who aren't familiar with that. So eight reasons why the Old Testament is vitally important for Christians today. And I want to encourage everyone here, let's be devoted to all of the Word of God and not neglect the Old Testament, the first three quarters of the Bible. It's written for us. We need it for our daily manna, for our own strengthening, to see clearly who God is, to find heroes that we can follow to meet our spiritual needs, and to evangelize the world. Please open the minds of other Christians as you have opportunity to dust off the Old Testament and have a great spiritual foundation in life. Amen.